Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Culture Bunker. I'm Sean Pattenden. And I'm Andrew Harrison. This week we are delighted to welcome the artist formerly known as the Big Nose Bard from Barking, Billy Bragg, whose new album is out today. At the movies, guest Linda Marrick helps us untangle Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. And we've got the new albums from American alt-indie combo The War on Drugs and the très bien compilation Pop Psychedelique, the best of French psychedelic pop 1964 to 2019. All this in today's Culture Bunker. Hello and welcome to the Culture Bunker and hello to our very special guest. He is the Woody Guthrie of British folk, pop and roll, standard bearer of protest pop over four decades. He's also the author of The Progressive Patriot and Roots, Radicals and Rockers, The Story of British Skiffle. Curator of the Left Field at Glastonbury and his new album, The Million Things That Never Happened, is out today, Friday the 29th of October. Hello and happy album day, Billy Bragg. Good morning and how fabulous it is to have the album out this morning. How lovely. I hope it is an absolute relief for you to have it out in the world like a baby. Indeed, it's a bouncing, healthy 12-track album. How do you feel? Are you exhausted by the process already? No, not really, because it's one of those weird things because of lockdown and everything. Mm-hmm. It seems to have gone on forever, you know. What I'm exhausted is trying to get the vinyl together. That's un- unfortunate. Um, I'm not sure if it's because the, the container got stuck in the Suez Canal or Adele mm. has put a record out there. All the vinyl <laughs> in the UK has disappeared. So those of us who are more indie uh, uh, end of the market, we're having trouble getting our vinyl together. But the CD and the streaming and all those other things are all out there. So mm. that's a plus. So um, I'm, I'm really excited about Good. everyone gets to hear it. You are not the only pop star to moan about the vinyls, Billy. Yeah, there's been a big backlog. And you're on actual tour right now. Gateshead, Dundee. You were at the Philharmonic Hall this week as well. Did you pop over the road to see what Andrew assures me is the most beautiful pub toilets in Britain? In the Philharmonic Rooms. (laughs) In Liverpool, yes. (laughs) I would have done, were it not for the fact that just opposite that, they've opened a Japanese ice cream parlour. I went in there Ah. instead, I'm afraid, Andrew. It was about 10 o'clock in the morning. We were just getting on the van. And I uh, just noticed that they had this place there, and I had some I had some green tea ice cream for breakfast, which is not what I normally do. I'll be honest with you, but it's kind of in keeping with uh, that trip, bit of the trip. The old hometown has changed. <laughs> it has, uh, and, and it's all lovely. So, how does it feel being back on the road after lockdown? A little bit odd. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first thing I did this morning, I actually was doing it while we were trying to hook up, because I did one of these, which I have. He's holding up a yeah. COVID test, people. Yeah, and it's negative. Yeah, I, I, I have to, I have to um, do this before I brush my teeth. Uh, so, you know, literally it's the first thing in the morning. I'm just, you know, you're bleary-eyed, uh, mm. sticking something up my nose. It's not the kind of rock star I thought I was. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, I can't, we can't go into venues without a, a negative test. Mm-hmm. So it's fine. I'm, I'm kind of on it. But the, the downside, of course, is that if, if one of us does pick up the virus, one of, I've got a crew of about five of us together on the road, yeah. um, we'll have to all go home. Which is, so we're, we're really serious about getting in. And I'm pleased to say the venues are... You know, checking people who are double vaxxed and, or have a clear test. So it's really weird, though. Um, you know, I'm in Birmingham at the moment. Mm-hmm. And um, as, I don't know if you're aware if you've ever driven around Birmingham, but they, it's impossible to drive around. So you're constantly about to cross the road and the car comes up the road and does a U-turn in front of you to get around some oh, yeah. thing. And every time I see that, I think, that's the virus, that is. <laughs> that's the virus trying to get around. It doesn't matter how many roadblocks you put in. The blooming virus is going to do a U-turn and get back in, so it keeps us on our toes. Yeah, very metaphorical, very psychedelic, which well, we're talking about later. Well, a singer-songwriter, I can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> it's all material. How are musicians mm. suited, do you think, to things like 18 months of isolation? Some are and some aren't? Yeah, some are and some aren't, yeah. I mean, I, it's the longest I've been home mm-hmm. uh, since my 20s, really. And it was revelatory to me. I found out a number of really exciting things. Firstly, my hair parts the opposite direction to the way I've always combed it. Because <laughs> it got so long and unkempt during the lockdown that it, it took on a life of its own. Yeah. And also, I, my partner and I, we discovered that we actually really like each other. <laughs> oh, well, that's lovely. Yeah, that was revelatory. Yeah, it was. Really <laughs> nice, that's the, I mean, apart from the year our son was born when I, when I took a, a year out mm. for that. But that was more like a uh, an assault call, so it wasn't really the place mm. where you you know refine your relationship. That was more like no. playing past the baby. Yeah. So yeah, so it's been cool. And also, I, I now know what the, the floor looks like in our in our basement because I've cleared it out. <laughs> so, some positive things have happened. Well, it does sound quite positive. I like it. We're going to talk to you about the new album a little bit more later. Making protest pop in a country that seems to get more divided, and the ways and opinions of young people. And more, but we do have another guest, don't we, Andrew? We certainly do. Also joining us, Linda Marrick is a film critic for Hey You Guys, the BFI, the Jewish Chronicle, the Mirror, the NME. Is that anybody she doesn't review films for? <laughs> Hi, Linda. How are you doing? Hello, I'm fine. 
fine. How are you? All right, not bad. So you ju- you've just finished the assault course. That is the uh, the London Film Festival. What were the highlights? Give us the uh, the edited uh, bullet points of the top things of the LFI. I have to say, the program itself, I wasn't as excited about it as I have been in the past. But of the films that I've seen, I've seen some really good ones. For example, the new Jane Campion film, which is a lovely uh, Western, beautiful, uh, starring Benedict Cumberbatch. Fantastic movie. It's called The Power of the Dog. I can see everyone in that film getting an Oscar nomination. How is Benedict Cumberbatch's uh, Wild West actions? Is it plausible? Very, very good. I wasn't sure to start with. It took me like five, ten minutes, and then his acting just made up for it. it. He is fantastic in that. And Jesse Plemons is also in it. But, I mean, Jesse Plemons is in everything. I liked... uh, uh, French Jacques Audiard's new film, French movie called um, Les Olympiades. I think uh, in in English it's called The Thirteenth District, like Treizième Arrondissement, and um, a few bits and pieces. You know that I I kind you know I wouldn't say it's like a vintage year, but you know it's good. It's all right. It's amazing they managed to pull it off at all. Before we crack on, a tiny reminder. Remember, you can get The Culture Bunker and all our shows early and without adverts when you support The Bunker on Patreon. That means episodes on politics, science, pop culture and much more every day. Plus, because we are innovators like Mark Zuckerberg. <clears throat> We've got a new benefit for Patreon people. You can suggest a tune for us to play in clip form on the show. If there's a great record on a smaller independent label that you love and who might give us permission, then suggest it in the comments to this show on the Patreon page and post a link to the song. Now, please, little reminder, don't say the Rolling Stones or Joni Mitchell. There's no point. We're not <laughs> going to do the dinosaurs, but we'll see what we can clear and play. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Right then, this brag fella, The Million <laughs> Things That Never Happened is his 10th-ish album, depends what you count. It's a record of pandemic blues produced by Romeo Stoddart for The Magic Numbers and it features a song co-written with his son, Jack Valero. My dad made me go to work with him as well. <laughs> We're going to talk about it, <laughs> politics, life, the universe and everything after that particular track co-written with Jack. It's called Ten Mysterious Photos That Can't Be Explained. Billy, tell us a bit about this. Writing with the lads. Oh, it's, a, it's really about, um, you know, the way the uh, internet can drag you down a rabbit hole. And mm. more so during during the pandemic when we had some downtime. I'm, mm. I'm not one of those people who thinks the internet is terrible. You know, what, what would the, the the lockdown have been without it? It would have been a nightmare. Mm. But I think you know it reflects who we are. It reflects all human life. So there's good and bad there. But uh, there was actually a website called Ten Mysterious Photos that can't be explained. Uh, well, uh, uh, I think it was a YouTube video, yeah. and I kept looking at it for days, thinking, I know they're not mysterious. I know that <laughs> they're going to be relatively easily explained. You know, it's light reflect- refracting off the sea. It's a man in a monkey suit. <laughs> but you know, but yeah. I, eventually, I had to go there, and I thought, well, this is you know, there's something here uh, in this for me. So uh, I wrote the song, and um, and then my son came along and corrected it for me, like he's corrected my homework. <laughs> so that was a bit of a. He thought that the first B part should be the the chorus and i was like oh god you know it's like repointing the entire song so he <laughs> I took it away and he messed around with it he came back and he said look like this he played it to me and actually frustrating me, it was much better which is really annoying to be, have your songs <laughs> sort of yeah. fixed by someone who can't even get it together to empty a dishwasher regularly it's really, <laughs> it's really a, a you know but it was good fun i was really pleased we, he did it because he's been writing songs for years jack and often you know he plays them to me and I, and I try and be encouraging because they're really good songs. But to actually write together, that's a new thing for mm. us. So, and he came and played on the record as well. So it was, it was really sweet. I loved it. He loved it. But his mum loved it most of all. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, let's have a listen. This is 10 mysterious photos that can't be explained. I've been down rabbit holes. I've seen the rabbit trolls cackling in the twilight of the age of reason. One thing I've noticed as I get older, common sense like art is in the eye of the beholder. Not a new breed of no, nothing's a flood in my screen. Now they scare me, they're so good damn sure. They look like me. Finishing your pandemic album on an up tune, that's a good idea. You could quite easily have finished on quite a depressing one, because it's the last no, track of the album, isn't it? A, you need a bit of a knees up, don't you, to close yes. on that. I mean, I've tried to write an album that doesn't, doesn't focus on the pandemic, but the pandemic's the backdrop of mm. it. Yeah. So there is some, you know, I'm trying to get on to how we feel about it and, and things like that. I mean, that's what the, the title track, The Million Things That Never Happened, I think once this is over, we're, we're going to have a sense of loss for the things that we couldn't do. And for some of them, 
some of us rather they'll just be you know social things we couldn't hang out with our mates or yeah. maybe have a holiday or something but for some people it's going to be really deep personal things like not being able to be there when someone passes away or to be able to console but uh, people have lost someone so i think it's going to be that's going to linger a long time after this thing's over yeah, I mean, something that's made me think, it's just like, I, I'm trying to not say, I'll do it next time, because you never know mm. if there's going to be one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you really need to seize the day. I mean, there's another track on it called Pass It On, which is, refers to, um, you know, asking your um, elders for the family stories before they too disappear. Because I did a bit of, um, I'm a bit of a family history buff in my spare time, and I, I put together a family history for my wife's family but only because we inherited all the stuff from her mum and I had all the photos and everything but of course with her mum not being there to ask the kids were all like our mum used to know this stuff and it really made me think if only I'd had time to sit down with Maggie and maybe go through some of this yes it would have saved me a lot of uh you know having to guess about what you know where things fit together so yeah there's that in there as well it's more of a it's a more reflective album and not quite so capital p political but um, I think, you know, you can't just pull that sort of thing on the pandemic and expect to come out the other side with people mm. recognising what you're talking about. You've got to sort of change the position from what you're looking at it in order to connect with what is fundamentally a universal experience rather than the normal situation for a songwriter like me where I'm trying to get the audience to come and check out this thing I'm, I'm writing about. Yes. You know, it's a universal thing. You're going to have to write an album that connects with as many people as possible. A lot of people saw the kind of early days of the pandemic as, as a real vindication of, of communal spirit. And in a lot of ways, it's the stuff you've always sung about kind of, you know, coming through before our eyes. People supporting the NHS, NHS's finest hour, applause in the streets. That seems not to have lasted. Do you think that we kind of learned new things about Britain during the, the, the course of the pandemic? Maybe some things that we perhaps will not find quite so comfortable. Yeah, one of the things we learned during the pandemic is people in London are mad. If you go in the supermarket where if you go in the supermarket where I live in, in West Dorset in Morrison's, eighty five percent of people are still wearing masks because they're still thinking about the pandemic, still concerned uh, for their health, but for everybody else's health as well. I'm always encouraged by that. But coming up to London last week and realizing that people don't seem to be doing that anymore, I don't know if if it's predominantly younger people who think they're immortal, mm. but you can't get rid of this thing by ignoring it. You know, you yeah. get rid of this thing by by all of us doing things that we normally wouldn't do. I mean, you know, our last thing I would do first thing in the morning is stick something up my nose and go through that old bloody thing. But I know, it, you know, it's for the common good. And I think at certain times, you know, individual freedom is absolutely key to a free society. But sometimes you have to lean the other way towards the, the idea of the common good. And, uh, and I think people have forgotten that. This isn't over. If anything, you know, the cases are still coming at us. Yeah. And, until we, and, and I don't think it's over until the immunocompromised can go back to their normal lives. Until then, yeah. I'm more, I'm more, you know, for every annoyed anti-vaxxer out there with their with their slogans, there are 10 people who can't come out because people like that won't wear a mask in Sainsbury's. So that's where my solidarity is with those people. And, and I think we still need to, to fight this thing. It's not over. Unfortunately, I wish it was, but uh, unfortunately, it's not over yet. There is a fun little hoedown on the album called Freedom Doesn't Come For Free on this very theme about personal freedom versus shared freedom. It's about libertarians building a kind of a town free of legal enforcement in New Hampshire, containing the, I thought, particularly entertaining lines, live free or die trying, you might get eaten by a mountain lion. Um, you know, that's that. Are you surprised that these, these these mad ideas that in the eighties we thought were kind of dead, libertarianism is kind of petering out, are now not just back, but they're kind of shaping world politics? Well, yeah, I mean, I think what's happened in, in the last uh, uh, sort of five or six years in the rise of people like Donald Trump and, and uh, Boris Johnson is another good example of the libertarian idea that it's not a political idea about a free society. It's an individualist idea about um, acting with impunity. And, you know, I, not all freedom is good. There are some freedoms that are downright dangerous. And most dangerous of all is impunity. When yeah. you're dealing with someone, whether it's running a country or in a relationship, when you're dealing with someone who acts with impunity, who has no responsibility whatsoever, who refuses to be held accountable for their behaviour, that's a really dangerous time. So mm. I, I think that that particular strain of libertarianism, the you know, the one that really boils down to you're not the boss of me, you know, nothing else, just yeah. a, a, you know, an absolute refusal to to accept any constraints. I find that irresponsible in terms of the pandemic, but downright dangerous in terms of uh, running a society. So, yeah, it's, it's something that I've, you know, I thought a lot about. I wrote a, a book called The Three Dimensions of Freedom, which argues that in order to really be free, you need not just liberty and equality, but accountability. And I don't think there's enough of that around. So, you know, we need to have that as our, our kind of red line so that society doesn't huh. uh, just break down into into selfishness and, and you know, every person for themselves. 
you and I are in similar age groups. You're early 60s, I'm mid-50s. Our contemporaries, it's often like the ex-punks, the ex-mons, the working class music fans who maybe don't get as much of a look in now. They're the ones who are the Brexiters. Does it trouble you? In a way, it's kind of, I'm not saying it's your audience, but it's the world of music that you've been in has actually, a lot of people didn't seem to learn the lessons of it. Yeah, I think you you, you have to look at, my first thing I have to say, music can't change the world. <laughs> so you can't expect songs to have that effect on people's behaviour. Now he tells um, us. <laughs> but, well, well, listen, if anyone knows, it's me. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Yeah. I'm not saying don't try. I mean, I'll keep pushing, but my experience is it doesn't. I think the root of the problem is people no longer feel they have any agency over their lives. You know, they don't feel as if they're they're in control of power as it exercised a long way away, whether it's in Parliament or in the corporate headquarters somewhere in another country. They kind of get angry, they lash out. You know, Brexit was I think Brexit was a, a demand for more more accountability to bring, you know, to bring decision making closer. And we live in, in England, we live in the most centralized country in Europe. We have no devolution to speak of. Um and I think we, you know, we really need to be uh, giving people the sense that they have some control over their lives, and I think that would that would ease things up a little bit. Because at the moment, I think you know, the, the, I, I can't imagine the people who who voted uh, in such numbers for Brexit were doing it for any other reason because they realised that with one vote they would get something. Just that one vote, they would get a result, and they had an opportunity, one opportunity to do that. So they might as well do it. Come on, let's just do it. Whereas the, the pro, uh, uh, you know, the, the people who wanted to stay were thinking we would never be so stupid as to leave the European Union because, you know, who signs up a trade deal that puts up more barriers? Yeah. <laughs> Nobody does that. And here we mm-hmm. are. So I, I don't, you know, I don't blame those angry people because they, they have been shafted, uh, particularly after all these years of austerity. But I, I do think we need to resolve that by giving them more more say over their lives, more control over their lives. And, and none of the political parties seem to be looking at that at the moment. One thing that has happened in the past sort of you know, 10, 15 years is that Music has become astonishingly middle class. It's full of people who all went to the same rather expensive schools. <laughs> who can afford schools. to do it. People who can afford to do mm. it, yeah. Could yeah. a Billy Bragg happen today? Or, or would he come from a very posh school and yet still, somehow still have the name Billy? Because posh people have William. working class names now, don't they? No, <laughs> no he'd, probably, he'd probably be uh, Quinton Bragg. <laughs> or Melvin, maybe. Um, <laughs> right. uh, I think, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm... I'm sorry about that because, you know, music always was a great uh, escape route for working class kids who, you know, left school at 16 and, and did, you know, didn't have many prospects, but were smart. I mean, if you look at me and Weller and, and that generation, you know, uh, John Lydon, we were all kids who didn't really, we were smart kids, but we just didn't get on with school. We were smart in other ways. Right. Um, and that, uh, pop music has always had a, a place for them, but it seems to have uh, dried up. It's much more uh, difficult to, to get hold of that now. And, and I worry that the pandemic, it's going to make it more difficult because those small venues are absolutely crucial to people uh, learning their trade and getting building an audience. So they're the ones who are most likely not to survive the pandemic. So mm. I can only see it becoming more difficult, yeah. particularly with political uh, songwriting. You don't really need to learn to sing now to, to express your view. You only really need a social media platform. So I think fewer kids are thinking, I'm, you know, I'm so angry about the world. Like me, you know, the only medium available to me when I was 19, if I wanted my voice to be able to learn to play guitar, write songs, do gigs. Now, you know, you got you can do all sorts of things. So I think it's really, um, those people are out there, they're still angry, but they're more involved in direct activism now. And that's that's a good thing in itself. Before we move on, how's Labour doing? How do you feel about Keir Starmer? Uh, one of the problems I had with, uh, with Jeremy Corbyn was his, his politics were, were a bit in the 20th century. He didn't grasp the nuances of, uh, of devolution, uh, you know, which is a Labour Party policy. You know, he didn't really have a grasp about the idea of England as a political entity, which I think is is really necessary to marginalise the the ethno-nationalists. I'm seeing the same with Starmer, you know. uh, I worry that 80% of Labour Party branches put forward the notion of proportional representation that the party should make out its policy. Starmer and his people shot that down. Uh, They're not going for a £15 minimum wage. Uh, You know, they're they're wishy-washy around £10 like the Tories are. There's a load of people out there who didn't want Brexit who don't seem to have anyone to represent them. Nobody's articulating where where we are all at at the moment and, and we just seem to be standing there watching the whole thing crumble. Every day there's another thing, the sewage, the drivers, the shelves empty. You know, every day there's something, the fishermen now. Every day there's something else. Where's the political party saying, standing up and saying, this is an absolute travesty, it's a complete mistake. This has just been done to benefit British capital. What are we going to do and put this back together again? 
Nobody's doing it. The Labour Party, I know they, I'm not saying they should just do this because they're the opposition, but they should be able to be able to put out policies that connect with people who have those those feelings. And I, I don't see it. And I'm really, I'm really disappointed in that. You know, I can't see it do, change anything at the next election. Brexit is the elephant in the room. Brexit is the, the Tories' shield, you know, that's going to stop them from being thrown out of power because they own it. The sooner we make people understand what a travesty is, the sooner they're going to see through what the Tories are doing and we can get some change. But at the moment, I don't see it on the horizon. All right, let's have some pop music. We always ask our guests to bring a tune in for your listening pleasure. And this week, Linda Marrick has chosen hers. What have you chosen, Linda? It's the new Placebo and Beautiful James. And I um, I used to absolutely love Placebo about 10, 15 years ago. And I, I've, I enjoyed everything they put out. And I listening to this again brought up so many memories. And I, I just think it sounds absolutely beautiful. Well, we can play this one. We have clearance. And of course, it's on our rolling playlist. So here it is, Placebo, Beautiful James. And it's exactly why I stay. Right, so to the movies. Edgar Wright's latest flick is released on this Halloween weekend, which is certainly no coincidence. Thomasine McKenzie, Anya Taylor-Joy and Matt Smith star in horror thriller Last Night in Soho that takes the idea of London's swinging 60s and aims to render it entirely unswung. Also featuring appearances by Terence Stamp, Rita Tushingham and Diana Rigg, you get a theme here. Will young fashion student Ellie conquer her demons as she moves from Cornwall to London, armed with a suitcase of Scylla Black and Petula Clark vinyls? Let's listen to the trailer first. Last night, I had a dream. There was a girl. I got this kind of gift. And you are? Sandy. I can see people, places. So I'll see you again. You know where to find me. But they're not just dreams. They really happened. What did you see? A girl murdered. You witnessed the murder last night. You believe this was a vision. Jack, I don't want to do this. You think you can just walk away? Leaving guys. Save yourself. Linda Marrick, I'm going to start with you. As we stated, Ellie moves to the city but is haunted at first by a mean girls troupe of fellow fashion students as she's studying uh, fashion in the present day. But also she's haunted by memories of a young woman called Sandy who is adrift in 60s London. Is this, like it sounds, a film of many parts? It isn't the film you think it's going to be, mm-hmm. but more importantly, I think if you don't really know Edgar Wright's sort of credentials, if you're not too sure about where he's coming from, uh, horror-wise, yes. uh, I think this will really throw you. And I think, I know, Andrew, uh, you said you were really thrown in the, <laughs> by yeah. how it developed. And I really love that. I think that's kind of pernicious. I think that's really naughty of him to sort of lure in people thinking they're going to see this film about the swing in 60s, all singing, all dancing, all sort of downtown and Scylla Black. Mm-hmm. And, and then suddenly sort of throwing them into this kind of uh, almost like Dario Argento the horror movie. And I love that. I love that about him. I think I th- it's a very clever way of inviting a bigger sort of a more mainstream audience into something so cult. It's a film about the seediness of London, about about how no matter how clean you think it is now, if you scratch a little bit, the seediness is still there. And I, I'm so impressed. I think this is his best his best movie. 
his best sort of fictional movie so mm. far because I, I kind of I really liked the Sparks Brothers uh, film as well. It's also about the rotten core of nostalgia, isn't it? Yeah. Because yeah. the first, yeah, 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 yeah. but and, and not this is not a spoiler, but we, you know we are introduced to the world of the nineteen. The nineteen sixties is beautifully recreated. Nineteen sixty, mm. so I was kind of slightly. Virgin on Tears, it was so beautiful, the nostalgia yeah. for that time, that we're all, we all love for the music, we all love for the films. We are, we are like Ellie, the central character, totally reeled in by this. Mm. And then your expectations are completely confounded, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely not swinging. It's definitely uh, the the sort of the most horrendous part of the sixties, which is the the, the ex- exploitation of young women who who've come to the city to sort of and looking for stardom, looking to become the next Cilla Black or the next Sandy Shaw, you know, and they are if taken advantage of and find themselves surrounded by these creepy old men wanting things from them. And I, I actually, I really admire the the subject, and I think it's it's co written by a female screenwriter, Christy well, Wilson Cairns. Yeah. Yes, so uh, I think she had a, a lot. I mean, but then again, he is someone. I think this is the his very first. Uh, movie to be sort of told from a female point of view uh, which I'm, I, I, I looked back and I, surprisingly yes it is he's always had this kind of ideas of bringing in sort of old 60s female stars into his films and here he does it again with Diana Rigg who is fabulous in it and it's her last movie and I mean, he de- he dedicates the movie to her as well. I mean, I think there's there's so many levels to this film, and it's uh, the more the more I, I've I've seen it twice now, and the more you watch it, the more you discover, you know, uh, new things about it. And um, I just loved it, loved it. Andrew, what were your thoughts about it? Well, like I said, I was I was completely disorientated when I first <laughs> yeah. saw it, but the more <laughs> yeah. I've thought about it since, the more I like it. Mm-hmm. I think it is actually, uh, it, it is ridiculous in the best way. It, it overreaches itself brilliantly and kind of lands it, I think. Um, we, it's not a perfect film. Um, the present day cast is, the performances and the style of presentation are very 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 broad brush mm. Mm. the the mean girls are incredibly broadly drawn ellie herself is not a fabulous character i don't think and it's not a fabulous performance mm-hmm. and her her kind of sounding board potential boyfriend i think the, like the phrase that we talked about the phrase we used a lot on the way out of the screening was uh, cbbc didn't we well man he's the manic pixie dream boy he is this, yeah and yeah. that is entirely compliant and even though she <laughs> is quite accusatory towards him yeah. he goes along with it and absolutely still in love with her because the rest of it is so um, is so ambiguous, and there's such mm. a lot of darkness, mm. and there's such a lot of subtlety in the performances. I have to conclude that the re- that CBBC is a choice. <laughs> that the banality of the present day versus the dark mm. complexity mm. of the past yeah. is a directorial choice. That that's what yeah. he's trying to say. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, we took we, you know it, the film rests upon the allure of nostalgia and the fact that even those who went around at the time have a kind of societal love of the 1960s when somehow everything was better. And this goes mm. into it and shows mm-hmm. you how absolutely wasn't it could be a horror show and especially for women and especially mm-hmm. in Soho it was a hellhole that sort of juxtaposition I thought worked really well but the film does manage to have its cake and eat it absolutely because the staging of the 1960s is so lush and so beautiful mm. and the musical numbers are so incredible the production design is fantastic Matt Smith is a great villain the core of it though is is that Ellie is literally experiencing visions mm-hmm. she literally is incapable of, of being able to distinguish reality from imagination and whether what the one is bleeding into the other yeah. when never quite sure whether this is a supernatural experience or whether it's all happening in her head we're never quite sure in parts where it's induced by whether it's induced by drugs or not mm-hmm. that's part of the uh, ambiguity of the film and when it goes into these insane lurid over the top special effects sequences hallucinatory that mm. is of course immensely in theme with 1960s movies which mm-hmm. didn't quite have the mm-hmm. special effects wherewithal to bring that stuff to life and yeah I think he uses it really well well the film references um Many films, a few of which, Peeping Tom, it ref- references a lot of Hitchcock, and Hitchcock didn't have CGI, but Hitchcock dream sequences are yeah. fantastic. You are drawn in. I don't think they're in any way clunky. Um, is this a sort of film that you would go and see, Billy, on a day off of your tour? It is actually, yeah, yeah. yeah we do tend to um, try to go see on a on a night off, have a curry, and go and see a movie. And we try and spread it around so it's not all one kind of movie. We had a we, last time we were in Liverpool on tour, the previous time from this mm-hmm. film, we had a 26 year old pedal steel guitar player with us, lovely guy, uh, CJ Hillman. 
And we were walking down to the cinema to watch the death of Stalin, and he just said, "Who was Stalin then?" Oh my God! Uh, God. So, so we had a we had a kind of long conversation. Wow. But then, and and then, oh, worse than that, he's totally not in the football. We made him come and see the Maradona movie, but he got his <laughs> own back by. Uh, we all had to go and see Once Upon a Time in America, and I can't stand Tarantino because of the oh. body count. But here's the thing. Uh, it's full of American cars, which CJ loves. So we all went to see it with him. And I'm I'm loving the movie and thinking, oh, actually, this is actually a really good Tarantino movie until mm. the end when he gets out of <laughs> flamethrower and kills everyone. I'm like, oh, <laughs> Spoilers, Phil. Oh, to me again. <laughs> you know, so, but, yeah, it's so yeah, but I agree. I agree. Democratic, democratic yeah. film watching okay. for the whole crew. So it doesn't all be the sort of film I wanted to be. But that certainly was one of the ones I was looking at when I walked past the Berman Modian yesterday, looking at the movies that are on for a night off. Mm-hmm. By the way, Billy, I think on that last tour that you just mentioned, your keyboard player may well have been Kenny Dickinson, who did our theme tune, which the listeners Kenny, yeah, just heard. Indeed. Yeah, there you it go. was the wonderful Kenny, yeah. Small good world, <laughs> Sean, what did you think of uh, Last Night in Soho? I love the middle. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah, when there is a blur between re- reality and fantasy, when it becomes horror, it becomes, you know, there may be a couple of zombies in it. Who knows? Mm. Um, the idea that it is about a fear of predatory men and about vulnerability and two sides of the same coin is Ellie as this very young, very, very vulnerable fashion studi- student and Sandy, whom she conjures up who is worldly to a certain extent and glamorous and seems to know Soho and has ambition and some sort of female power and yet we see that the way it gets jumbled up, the way there is paranoia, I mean, this is essentially, I think, someone having a nervous breakdown. This is mm. a woman on the verge of. That I found really interesting, but topped and tailed by what we're now calling the CPPC element, <laughs> yeah. um, I found quite jarring. And that's yeah. the problem I have had thinking about well, it that's and what living I quite, with it for I, a few You liked it. I've now like, found it jarring. You know, within yeah. 10 minutes, you're watching an episode of Doctor Who. You're watching <laughs> an actual blood splatter horror yeah. movie. You're watching yeah, yeah. An, halluc- an hallucination scene. You're watching a kind of a... a a, a school drama on TV. But sa- something soundtrack to Cilla Black, mm. whom I yep. absolutely adore and always wave the flag for Cilla Black. You know. Yeah, natural born Cilla, <laughs> that's you. Yeah. Is, is there any, you know, it seems to me, talking about the, the central character, mm. not knowing if she's in reality and drifting in and yes. out of this dream state. I think it's very timely with the with the stuff going on about uh, young women being spiked. At yeah, 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 yeah it seemed yeah. really just prescient. In Oxford, just yes. in Oxford two nights ago. After the show, I came out and there was women in the streets demonstrating against really? uh, certain nightclubs yeah. where they believe this, you know, they tolerate yeah. this kind of thing. So, I mean, I haven't seen the film, but there's a, mm. it seems very timely. Well, mm. without giving too much that. away, that uh, that particular That's bell might be wrong at to, certain yes. point. Yeah. And the idea, the idea that the sixties there is this dark heart. We don't see it enough. We know that, but uh, and it's in novels and it's in fiction, but not always on the screen. Another thing I thought was great about it is that this film is not appearing in isolation. Obviously, I loved Mad Men, but the world was full of people taking the getting the wrong end of the stick with mm. Mad Men. Wasn't it great in those days? No, it wasn't. It was a hell no, for exactly. particularly for women, but also for the men involved. <laughs> it takes that sort of superficial fascination with we look at the shop suits and the collars, and also yeah. the fact that Ellie is very much she's very much kind of Mojo reader dream girl. Oh, she's into proper music with vinyl. She's not yeah. into the rubbish they listen to now, Absolutely. the rappers and the synthesizers. She likes proper stuff. She's a crate digger. And that, she's a mm. crate digger. And yet that itself is also interrogated pretty quite mercilessly, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot in it, as we are saying. There's, I think we are broadly recommending, aren't we? You get, a lot, you get a lot of bang for your buck. I think if you discount what you thought was more like CBBC acting, then sort of, I... I I didn't have a problem with that mm. because I kind of really love those actors. And I think Thomasin McKenzie is a very good actress. There have been some sort of people who not com- are not convinced by her delivery here. But I, I just think I think mm-hmm. she's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Generally, I think she's a wonderful actress. Young, you know. Yeah. Before we move on, Linda, a film swatch that you are. Um, give us a couple of films to watch. Apparently, you've seen Marvel's The Eternals already. I have, yes. So this is the first Marvel movie that isn't about you know the characters that we know already Mm. so this this is considered the sort of fourth level of the marvel story Uh, yeah yeah. uh phase four yeah and uh and it's directed by uh chloe zhao who uh i'm sure billy you probably have seen this film called uh nomadland Mm -hmm. that Mm. won the oscar last year so 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 you understand what kind of director she is she's an an indie director Mm -hmm. very fussy, sort of you know stripped down and she's been given this big hollywood superhero movie to work with and the result i'm afraid are not very good uh i i 
just I was not convinced by it by this at all I think the CGI is absolutely horrendous I mean I, the casting is kind of okay and, and I totally understand what she was trying to do with the film I totally understand she was trying to to sort of give them more to talk about you know there's a lot of sitting down and talking and sorting out mm problems rather than fighting right. and for the first time ever you know me <laughs> for the first time ever in, in a, a marvel movie i basically thought to myself actually no can can we have a bit more fighting <laughs> more explosions because this is boring as fuck <laughs> so, sorry it was really boring it's probably not the the worst marvel movie ever but it's mm-hmm. it, it it is getting <laughs> okay. there you oh know? dear All don't right. put that on the poster okay mm. It's not just the guests that get to choose a tune for your attention. We do too, now and again. A Certain Ratio, the great Manchester institution and contemporaries of New Order are back, back, back and sounding pretty fantastic actually at the moment. Their trademark percussion-mad electronic funk is very much back in focus in 2021. Next week they release a remix album of their Loco LP in which today's modern young groovers get their hands on the tracks from ACR's Modern Incarnation. The album's called Loco Remezclada. I've pronounced that very badly, but I'm giving it a try. It includes reups by Maps, Scream, The Orioles, plus also Graham Massey from 808 State for the old people. I'm going to go and see them on Sunday. It's also got the late and much-loved Denise Johnson on it. This track is a real standout for the record. It's Lone Ladies Chop and Drop Mix of Bouncy Bouncy, and it sounds like Parliament, so have a listen. Right, Billy, you. Let's stick with hot recommendations. Billy Bragg, you've selected a current favourite tune too. The Curse of Music clearance strikes again. We can't play it, but we can put it on our playlist. But what is it and why do you like it? Yeah, I've chosen uh, 17 Going Under by Sam Fender from his new album, which is also titled 17 Going Under. I like Sam. I think he's one of the young generation. I wouldn't call them writing political songs, but they're writing about the pressure that young people feel under and i think that's enough you know mm-hmm. i don't expect them to be writing like i was during the the 80s in that capital p political because they were capital p political times they were ideological times mm. now i think the the pressure that young people feel is much more diffuse it's much harder for them to get focused on but he's clearly trying to write about that and 17 going under really reminds me when i was 17 when i just left school he talks about getting into fights he talks about there's a great line in it where he, he says you know I, I would i didn't fight him at the time but if i was there now I was far too scared to hit him, but I would hit him in a heartbeat now. You know, I've, I've you know, I can remember thinking back to my times when they're dealing with the, the local bullies mm. that I wished I had that time back again. God knows what I would do. But I just think that he's he's trying to get to grips with it. He's not trying to sell people an idea that everything's yeah. cool. Again, he's, you know, he's come from a similar background to mine. Maybe it's more grit in what he's doing. But yeah, respect to him for trying to do that. In some circles, they're calling him the new Billy Bragg. Are you digging your own pot grave here, William? No one one should have that cross the bear. (laughs) The thing is, when you're the only person who wrote about those kind of political things, you end up being a bit um, stereotyped and people always use you as a point of reference. You Mm -hmm. know, on those weird days... We all have them. When I'm Googling myself, as you do, <laughs> after brushing brushing my teeth and testing my COVID, yeah. uh, I usually find myself, I, it's usually me being used as a point of reference for some poor kid who's trying to be a singer-songwriter. Oh, I really feel sorry for him. Oh. So, um, you know, I think he could be the new Bruce Springsteen. He's got okay. that kind of big voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, not new Springsteen, but he's more he's more up that end of the, mm-hmm. the, the pop pantheon, really. He's going for those really great, I was thinking it's a bit of U2 in the way he sings as well, mm-hmm. which is not a bad thing in my book. You know, it can't we can't all be uh, you know sort of solo singer songwriters, but he can do that as well. I've seen him do that as well. So, so good luck to him. Yeah, I hope he uh, I hope he has a, a good go with this record. Fabulous, Sam Fender and Seventeen Going Under. All right, in the meantime, just say no. You're going to get it in a minute, everybody. <laughs> Grammy Award winning The War on Drugs, Adam Grandisiel's plaintive and yet stadium-filling US rock band releases sixth studio album, I Don't Live Here Anymore, today. We also have retro psychedelic pop compilation, Maison Acide. Anyone? 
in the form of Pop Psychedelic, which features tracks from Bridget Bardot and Jean-Jacques Perry, to Stereolab and the Luminanas. Sadly, the curse of music clearance means we can't play the war on drugs, but we'll drop change into the rolling playlist. And from Pop Psychedelic, Le Fil Se Fait Pour Faire L'Amour by Charlotte Leslie. Let's start by discussing the war on drugs. Not the real war on drugs, the band. Latest album, I Don't Live Here Anymore, was recorded in upstate New York in the snow and is released this weekend. So if you like your rock alt, your Grammys won and your heart on your sleeve, this is going to be your thing. I'm not going to lie, this is soft rock for people who may find the flaming lips a bit too edgy. Billy Bragg, (laughs) what were your thoughts? All of it, 1980s, wasn't it? I thought, yeah. you know, yeah, I, was, yeah. I, I mean, when, when I mean, I'm not, I'm not familiar with the general thing, but I get the idea of them a bit more being a bit more acoustically, a bit more winsome, maybe. Maybe that's not the right word. But when it started with the acoustic guitar track, I thought, mm-hmm. okay, this is cool. I'm, I see in in what my concept of what they do is, I understand that. Next thing, I'm like, doo, 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 doo. the next yeah. track comes in, and it's like this big. I mean, yeah. like, we were in the van, obviously, so I was sharing it with everybody in the van, and we were mm. kind of like, we were kind of back with Duran Duran somewhere. Now, I understand. Mm-hmm. Young people tell me that that sound is very fashionable at the moment, so I don't wish to pour uh, piss on on what they're doing. Because as I say, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not au fait with exactly what's fashionable at the moment. But it did seem to me to be an odd sounding record from that particular band. So it may be that people who have been to them will be thinking, "Oh, this is interesting," or be thinking, "Oh, maybe I just listen to Phil Collins." <laughs> There's a fair bit of Phil Collins to be found. Yes, yes, there may be, and the Cars I thought of Ooh. too, which is obviously an '80s influence. This is Americana, and this is Americans reflecting on the idea of Americana and songs about Americana sung by Americans. Do we need this reflection? Does we as British people get this, Billy? Well, I think Americana is a very broad thing. I mean, I'm I'm classified as Americana now, and yeah, I think that's yeah, part of your new I did, album. Yeah, is, I did that. Oh, yeah, I did that, that with yeah, Guthrie yeah. thing with Wilco. Mm-hmm. I've worked with Joe Henry, who's a, a classic Americana producer. And I went to the Americana Music Awards and they, we, they, they explained to me, you know, just to get my head around it, it's, it's basically music, new music made that is, is using uh, music, roots, roots music from America. So it's mm-hmm. very, very broad, you know, gospel, souls, mm. you know, all sorts of music. And certainly, um, you know, I fit into that. I have a huge love of American soul music and gospel music. And so, yeah, I, I imagine it does fit into that. But generally the cutoff point for Americana is usually the 60s. Right. This is a more 80s reference yeah. Yeah, yeah, record. Yeah. So maybe they've shifted the idea of what Americana is while I was out in the pandemic. I don't know. But <laughs> I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have expected to find this in the Americana section, this particular album. I'm calling it Americana because to me it seems like ages ago and this is that new alt kind of Americana, which then maybe yeah gets a few lindrums in. Andrew, is this your sort of thing? Because I'm imagining with so many guitars, a me fou as I can't say, <laughs> guitars, one on top of another, on top of another track, but another track, this isn't quite your thing. This one isn't. I'd like their earlier stuff, he said, boringly. Uh, when they used, to, they used to cite Mega Dream Pop. You're smoking your, smoking I, yeah. your chin, I'm in, you Yeah, I'm into my own early stuff. Um, when they first appeared, it sounded like, they sounded like a better-adjusted Joy Division or a, mm. like a My Bloody Valentine with tunes, mm. grand sweeps, lots of crowd, lots of motoric on the go, mm. um, very hallucinatory. That first album, Lost in the Dream, it was that kind of doped-out space pop mm. reverie area that I really enjoy and you mentioned the, the Flaming Lips it had a foot in that camp they went a bit more cosmic yacht rock on the, on the next record mm-hmm. that's fine but to me this is a real turn to the conventional and I find it dull I can't get excited by the reiteration of things we've heard many many times before in the in the mega guitar area I'm not saying that it's all like that there is stuff on here that is good it's a track called Harmonious Dream which mm-hmm. is like Jerry Garcia singing over Can, which would be you know, great fun. And <laughs> the clues in the title, Harmonia, you know, the, the, he really gets into that mm. churning, repetitive, mind-cancelling stuff that yeah. is basically the rock version of house music, isn't it? That track, I think Billy alluded to it a minute ago, I don't want to wait, it's basically in the air tonight, which is going great, and then it turns <laughs> yeah. into Foreigner, and which, mm. uh, you know, I, I don't mix your meds too much there. I, I found it. I found it painfully earnest, and he is dealing with important, real stuff about the tragic direction of America, and mm-hmm. the tunes here about his old neighbourhoods getting knocked down and losing its soul, and, and the fact that people who consider themselves on the progressive end of things are completely turned around and bamboozled right now. There's nothing mm. for us to hold on to. Mm. It's important, real stuff, but it's delivered in such an earnest way. In sharp contrast to Billy, who's always funny, even when he's singing about mm. miserable stuff. Mm. It's always a, there's always amusing little bits of wordplay that 
give you. I the, think the word the word you're looking for Andrew, is wry. I think is the word. Right. Wry. Yeah. There you go. And wit as well. Yeah. I mean, is there funny, any wit in I'm this? I'm trying to be wry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Billy. You you yeah, try to be wry, but sorry. you end, you end I mean, up being funny. Do, if you come and see me, you do get more laughs than an average Paul Weller gig. But I don't think it's not a competition. Yeah. But you know, I I think I think a humour and and wryness, if you want to call it that, is essential to get through this stuff. And there's vanishingly little of it on this record. I'm afraid. Mm, so I, I wasn't sold. Yes, I did write earnest and sincere down fairly early. Yeah, your favourite feminist. <laughs> yes. Um, Linda, there's also lots of stuff about fatherhood. He is father to a two-year-old called Bruce, named after Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, I mean... I, what did I, you feel? It's funny that you say that, because for me it was Bruce Springsteen, you 2 Toto, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all of those. And I've, I've heard those. I don't really need to hear more of those. And I... I it's, it's their sixth album? Is that what you said? Yes, I believe so. Album. Fifth or sixth I, I, studio you know, album. I, 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 I think they, they have completely passed me by. And uh, in all honesty, I have zero interest in this band and even less now with this album. Having listened to Billy's album just before that, mm-hmm. um, that is for me proper Americana. This isn't an Americana. This is trying to emulate sort of older stuff that we've all heard before. It might actually work on younger... Uh, listeners but mm-hmm. for me for me it didn't work and I didn't feel it like it was American in any way so are we going to be dusting down our check shirts I don't uh, own one uh, <laughs> you're going to be most. buying a check shirt <laughs> I mean yeah no I, I, I don't discount the, the sort of importance of what they're saying of what he's saying but at the same time it doesn't move me in any way because it doesn't I don't feel touched by any of the subjects and that's that's that I mean for, who hasn't Every single singer-songwriter has written about fatherhood. He's not the first or the last, and there's going to be plenty more to come, so, you know. Billy's nodding sagely there. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. We all have. Even I've written about fatherhood. Good for you. (laughs) And on to Sulepav, La Psychedelia. (laughs) This stuff is resurging thanks to soundtracks from Like the Serpent, (laughs) Queen's Gambit and Killing Eve. Would you believe it? We also had Johnny Trunk on the show. Yes. Lounge core is, is very much... The sofa du jour. That was yeah. very good. <laughs> Billy, are you a fan of La Moog and La Musique Trippé? It's a big yeah, yeah for me because I'm uh-huh. very much a fan of that kind of, uh, you know, sort of mid-60s uh, French pop. I love a bit mm. of uh, Francois Hardy, uh, those kind of singers. Love the kind of pop sensibility. And, the, and what's great with this album is you can hear the pop tracks they're aiming for you know every mm. now and then it's a you know a bit of wild thing comes on mm-hmm. like, in the earliest stuff it obviously as it gets later into the into the 21st century it becomes more you know like air and bands like that they're, yeah. They're, yeah. they're not they're not self-referencing in a way that they used to in the 60s but i do love that 60s pop so i we they made me put this on twice in the band so oh, good. To okay. it. Yeah, good. yeah yeah so that 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 was very positive. This is definitely something I would be listening to. And I don't I don't think it fits completely into that lounge. It's more of a kind of like, I think it's more a kind of a sort of a, a, a sort of like a pop is, I can't say it in French now, pop exotique would be oh, a better way yes, to put it. Much and better. I, and I, I really yes. love a bit of that. So yeah, big, big uh, yeah, yeah from me. So the van says yes to yeah, yeah. We say it. Très bien, <laughs> I like très bien. the van vote. Yeah. Très bien, dans le van. <laughs> It may be the fact that we're all staying in the Malmaison may have you having something to do with it. French for bad house, is it? Yeah. <laughs> yes, it does mean bad house. It always worries me that. Now, Linda, anyway, you... Yeah, love it. <laughs> Wonderful. Linda, you speak uh, French pretty fluently, um, and so you're going to get a lot more stuff <laughs> than us. We're flicking through the Collins uh, <laughs> English-French dictionary at the time. What did you make of this compilation, Pop Psychedelic? Oh, yeah, it's fabulous. It's fantastic for sort of maybe a uh, someone who isn't very much I fait with the uh, chanson française with like mm-hmm. with the French pop but mm. I, I, I think there are a couple of misses which I mean I was kind of disappointed I really like Serge Gainsbourg obviously mm-hmm. but I think choosing Requiem pour un camp instead of other things that are so much more sort of representative of that era is mm. a bit weird there is no Jacques Dutron which is a bit no. annoying yeah. who I think is the flag bearer of the whole movement there's also no François Hardy. But then, on the whole, if this brings more people into it, why not? Mm-hmm. I really like that. Mm-hmm. There's two France Gall singles in here, which is mm-hmm. Les, Les, uh, Les Tombes des Filles and which one? Oh, Poupée de Cire, mm-hmm. I, which are both absolutely beautiful. The only thing I can say, there's nothing in between. It says here from 1964 to... Yeah, I noticed that. There's nothing that in a... between. Where's yeah. the 70s? Where's yeah, the 80s? Yeah, yeah. 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 
But then you've got disco, so maybe that's another compilation. Yeah. No, but there is, you know, like Claude got, François, yeah. Mylène Farmer, you know, like lots of other things that happened in the 90s and 80s that were really mm. good, you know. Uh, Noir Désir, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. The lack of François Hardy, I didn't think. It's I mean, bizarre. It, you know, it yeah. was. Kel from Ars will sit in the band. <laughs> but isn't that, isn't that a choice, though? Because very little of it is well known, with the exception of things like uh, CK Rock and EVA, the latest, mm-hmm. but, you know, the more kind of dance floor based things. Most, uh, isn't this a kind of a, a, an easy entry deep cuts thing rather than here's Francois Zardy that you might know? No, this is very well known. I mean, in France, it is. In France? Mm-hmm. These not... songs are, are very. I mean, France Gall is really popular, even here, isn't she? I mean, I she's well known. She's known now, yeah. Yeah, she's known. exactly. So I and Brigitte Bardot. I mean, they could. They're, she's they're quite well known. <laughs> exactly. I'll give you that. Oh, she's and quite I, well I known. wouldn't say Brigitte Bardot is like uh, the sort of uh, you know uh, the enfant terrible of the yeah yeah years. That's uh, true. No, that's true. Exactly. Well, that's true. <laughs> the track that's on here, Contact, was uh, a real a real David Holmes favourite. Mm, wasn't yeah. it? Mm, I was playing yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Where, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I like. Where is Jacques Dutron? Where is he? He's he's like he's on the next one. He's on number two, or, volume two. Or even Pop Johnny, yeah. Johnny Alliday. There's where a lot of this Alliday? stuff. Johnny Alliday. Where is he? <laughs> I mean, I'd say Francoise Hardy is just too. She's too serious. This is trying to say that you know here is where we get sci-fi mixed with exotica, mixed with some sort of pop music and melding it all together rather than, you know, someone who's a little bit more austere. Andrew, what were your thoughts? Were you dancing around your kitchen to this? Oh, yeah, in my miniskirt. It was absolutely <laughs> yeah, wonderful. It is so very much the opposite of the earnestness I was just moaning about. Mm. Yeah. It is the pure joy yes. of wild, ridiculous music. Um, Brigitte Bardot's thing about Ali Davidson um, is yes. always amusing. It summons up the image of the kind of ludicrously over-the-top nightclub scene in mm. any film shot between 1966 and 1971. Everybody is uh, shaking their barn at the Frightened Sensor. It's all one-minute, 40-second bangers yes. all the way Someone through. will say groovy in the middle Absolutely. of it as well, yeah. <laughs> usually in an accent. And yeah. I don't think the appeal of this stuff is camp. I think it is genuinely beautiful, genuinely exciting music. It is ambitious in the way that many of the rock bands we revere aren't uh, ambitious mm. In, mm. and and. It's that strange. In the way that pop music can be. Yeah. Pop music can sort of. And there seems to be a space in French pop music where, ludicrously, for such a long time, in, you know, the Anglophone world, it was considered Mm. that French music was rubbish and Mm. not proper. Mm. Well, how wrong can you be? There was a space for French pop to go go wild. And this Mm. is French pop going wild. So I absolutely love it. I commend it to the listeners. As we come to the end of the podcast, it's time to add another tune to our roll call of the greatest songs of all time for our rolling playlist as chosen by our star guests. Billy Bragg, what are you choosing as your favourite tune of literally all time? I'm choosing Willing by Little Feet, the, the second version they recorded in 1972, not the first one on their earliest album, the second one with the piano on it. Hmm. And to me, it's about, it talks to me about my job. I have to do some really daft things sometimes that normally I wouldn't do, mostly uh, go on aeroplanes. I'm a, what you might call an apprehensive flyer. <laughs> so on those times when I'm feeling a bit down in the dumps, you know, we're we're flying through the night in cloud, it's bumping up and down, the seatbelt signs on, and I'm thinking to myself, what the hell am I doing here? How did I end up getting a job that puts me in this <laughs> situation where I'm on the I'm on the verge of panic here? And I think to myself, well, you know, it's because I'm willing, you know, I really want to do this job. I, I wanted my whole life to do this job. I'm so lucky to still be doing it in my sixties. Uh, just you know, it allowed it gra- kind of grounds me, not literally, but uh, you know, makes me think of all the people who love to do my job. And how mm. fortunate I am. Mm. You need that sometimes. Whatever job you have, you have days where you think to yourself, well, oh, you know, here we go again. Mm. And that's, you know, so that's that's how I've used it. I've used it as you can use music to help me to transcend my surroundings and get me to a, another place where I'm a bit calmer. And that's that's the power that music has. Not the power to change the world, but the power to change your mood. And that's in, in itself a great, great power to have. Fantastic. We'll stick it onto the ruling playlist. So Willin by Little Feet goes on the Eternal Omni playlist. So we're at the very end of the podcast. And it's closing time chatter. What will we be discussing as we shimmy down London's glorious Carnaby Street with pointy white boots on and a leopard print (laughs) catsuit? And that's just the boys, ain't it, Linda? (laughs) Linda, what's your closing time chatter? It's something that Billy touched upon a little bit earlier regarding sort of big events and the sort of making sure that everyone is safe 
in those events. Uh, after the uh, closing night of the BFI, uh, the BFI LFF, the London Film mm-hmm. Festival, uh, loads of sort of guests got an email saying that they'd been exposed to mm. COVID, and, mm. that, and I, I, I'm not putting the blame uh, uh, for this on the BFI at all because it's really hard when you're organising a uh, an event that is taking place in different venues sort of keep tabs on everything that's going on but one thing i noticed and which is which has really actually given me a little bit of sort of i'm I'm really disappointed in the way people have behaved is you go to a screening or to a a big screener for a a gala and nobody's wearing a mask and the staff at the venue are but nobody's reinforcing wearing masks at all throughout the whole festival i just found myself sitting next to people who didn't care as if there wasn't a big pandemic going on and i think it's really important to sort of start rethinking these i know the government have given completely given up on us and have refused to implement the the, the mask mandate which is which angers me more than anything but i I think venues are going to have to start taking responsibility for putting their the people they want into their into these places I'm actually put off going anywhere because of this, because I am very sort of vulnerable and I I can't do my job at the moment Mm. because people are so selfish. Andrew and I went to a gig this week and I never wanted to go to a gig again oh, after that because they didn't check for COVID and yeah. it was oversold and it was absolutely rammed like sardines. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. it is a longer conversation, isn't it? Billy, what's your closing time chatter? Uh, bus strikes. Oh. As I travel around the country from town to town, everywhere seems to be on the verge of or actually involved in a bus strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we started in Dundee where uh, I got uh, tapped to come down to the picket line, but the, while we were in Dundee, it was resolved. And mm-hmm. the stagecoach caved in and gave the bus drivers what they wanted. Yep. Uh, there's one going on in Liverpool in the northwest uh, at the moment, and I think it's happening in Cardiff as well. We're right. on the way there. And the reason for it is that driving a lorry pays twice as much as driving a bus. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And now all the lorry dri- all the bus drivers are like, you know what? I would rather go and drive a lorry. I don't have to interface with the public mm-hmm. and have the same problems that Linda just touched on there mm-hmm. about people not wearing masks and getting angry when you ask them to put a mask on. You're twice as much money. You're your own boss. You can make mm-hmm. your own time. So it's really interesting that the mixture of the pandemic and Brexit is going to give, put yeah. workers in a strong position to be able to bargain for rights and terms and conditions and wages in the workplace. I think that's a very interesting development. Mm. It's been interesting. You've seen headlines on the front of the Telegraph saying things like unions to hold Britain to ransom because of pandemic. It's like, well, if you're going to kick out a huge part of the workforce, Telegraph yeah. people, you're going to find that workers and unions are maybe a bit more powerful than you, Telegraph people, want them to be. And it's not ransom. You know, uh, workers yeah. have the yeah. right to withhold yeah, yeah. their labour. You could, you know, you want pe- you want people to be able to bargain in the workplace for, for their labour. And that's the way things should be. You know, it's been wrong that it's not been like that for the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. It's about time we got around that. Again, that's again about people giving people agency over their lives, having accountability in the workplace. So I'm, I'm really encouraged by it. Mm-hmm. Billy's found a Brexit dividend. Who can believe it? <laughs> Never <laughs> happened. <laughs> well, that's good. Positive thinking. Andrew, what's yours? Well, I'm going to bring it right back to the trivial. Doctor Who's back on Sunday. <laughs> and I am, I am actually quite optimistic because this okay. has not been a good run, no. this producer. And, and Jodie is still there, is I she? think she has been given a very poor run of scripts and mm. she hasn't been written very well. But I'm weirdly optimistic about the last six because mm-hmm. they, it's going to be a very short series because of the pandemic. And they seem to have packed in a tremendous amount of thought and reconsideration. So my... And of course, you've got John Bishop coming mm. in as uh, the first ever companion from Liverpool. I think they may pull it back in the sort of last 10 minutes of the 90. I've got an optimistic mm. feeling about this. But the interesting thing that I wanted to raise for you, Sean, and you, Ellen, this might uh, might excite you. Apparently, Edgar Wright very nearly directed the pilots when right. this series came back in 2005. Oh. Russell Davis wanted him to direct the very oh. first one. You can imagine what that would have been like, Doctor Who in the style of Spaced. But he couldn't yeah. do it because he was doing Shaun of the Dead. Oh, that's interesting. But Russell yeah. Davis is back now, so... Edgar Wright mm. may get another shot at it. Mm, but said, I also think Edgar Wright and women also has a problem writing women. But, 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 but. You, you, you said, ooh, that's interesting. Those other voices said, that's not interesting. <laughs> you can read me so well. What's your closing time shot at, Sean? Well, I have to mention that Facebook is rebranding itself as Meta. <laughs> the company has dedicated £10 billion in 2021. I'm not sure exactly what bit of 2021 that is, to rebranding and researching and being the Metaverse and putting out that very strange film. Did you see it yesterday? Of Mark, Clegg. Mark Zuckerberg talking oh my God. remotely to Nick Clegg like they were old pals, like, but also hello. they were on TVAM. Hello, I'm Mark Zuckerberg. I'm a human 
like you. Listen to me yes. talk like a human. Here are my, here's my human yeah. face and my human hands. I, I couldn't tell the CGI. Yeah. I was looking in a mirror. It's, I didn't yeah. it was a, a... Two white guys glossing over privacy problems, problems with global democracy, problems that we can't even foresee yet. Um, and it, I just find this absolutely incredible and so horrifying that I mean just even within Facebook they the safety division received five billion pounds in funding this is getting double but think of all the money and think of what you can do with the money and think of how you could do something else with the money and we are all addicted to this technology and I call it an addiction it's not a compulsion there is something in that it is so hard not to keep in touch with your family and your friends, and especially within the thing called the pandemic and in lockdown, we're sort of glued to this thing that we hate. And it's just, it's really difficult, isn't it? I've, I, I hate I, Facebook. I, yeah, it's, it's infuriating. But, but I think putting five billion quid into trying to detoxify this toxic enterprise that we're all stuck with is, is not necessarily a bad thing. I think, you know, it's... But putting yeah, 10 billion into getting Nick Clegg to sit in his... I don't think Nick got the 10 billion. I think, I think the 10 billion <laughs> went on new letterheads and new business course, cards that say Meta, yeah. not Facebook. They're yeah, quite expensive. They crossed it out. Absolutely. They could have crossed it out with a biro. would cost them. Yeah, things can only get better. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the end of the podcast. Thank you so much to Mr. Billy Bragg. Thank you. It's been great fun. It's been wonderful. It's been an honour. Where's next on the tour, did you say? Where are you going to from Berlin Cardiff, today? Cardiff, uh, Southampton. Then we're over to Belfast, Dublin, Galway. Yep. Uh, and then uh, I haven't got to the page in the itinerary yet. It goes <laughs> on to It finishes in the roundhouse in the last week of uh, of November. Right, and you've got your, your bumper pack of COVID tests, lateral flows with you. <laughs> and, and the album's out today. Everything's good. <laughs> of yes. course, the album is out today. And thank you to Linda Marrick. We're so pleased you could join us as well. Thank you. <laughs> From me, Andrew, producers Alex Reese and Yelena Sofronievich, thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. The Culture Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Sean Pattenden. The assistant producer was Yelena Sofronievich and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune and keyboards for Billy Bragg by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production.